0: Why should this matter? Why should Shemaniyat have any relevance or all these six fasts? Four out of the six of them are for a temple that none of us grew up with or really relate to necessarily anymore. But for some reason, these have endured in a very powerful, I would say magical way, and I wanted to understand that.
1: Welcome to Trending Jewish. I am Rachel Burgess here with my awesome co-host Brian Schwartzman. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Brian. And (laughs) here we are on a beautiful sunny day at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in beautiful downtown Wincote, which everybody needs to make sure they put that on their map.
2: It's actually a very nice area. People should visit.
1: Yes, definitely. And um, leaves are beginning to change. Our fall holidays are finally over with. And looking forward to well, what is the next holiday that's coming up? It's Hanukkah, or
2: no, no, uh, yeah, I don't think there are any oh. fast days or anything till then. So
1: no, we've I think Passover the... is after that.
0: Yeah,
2: uh, uh, we've got we've got the holiday expert on the phone, and I'm I'm thrilled <laughs> and e- excited. This is um, we've got uh, we've got a real luminary in the, in the house uh, on on the phone. So um, I don't want to waste any time. So we'll 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 jump right in. And and introduced uh, Abigail Pogruchen, who is um, the author of three books, including the recently published "My Jewish Year: Eighteen Holidays, One Wandering Jew." And um, Abigail's had a, a really varied uh, and exciting career in broadcast and print journalism. Um, was a producer for Fred Friendly, Charlie Rose, and uh, Bill Moyers at PBS, and uh, Ed Bradley and Mike Wallace at 60 Minutes, and uh, also written for Newsweek, New York Magazine, and The Forward, where she um, started this uh, expansive series that eventually became the um, the new book. Um, she is the daughter of uh, feminist uh, icon Letty uh, Cotton-Pogrebin, and... Um, Also, um, and also is, uh, we are proud and thrilled that the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College to have uh, Abby leading one of our Reconstructionist learning networks. And in this case, it is a, uh, basically a digital book club led by the author. So um, welcome and, and thanks for coming on our show.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm sorry I interrupted you before, but, you know, I'm I'm New York and Jewish and pushy.
1: Well, and you also know when all of the holidays are because you, I think some of us are very spiritual and very religious. We don't necessarily celebrate all of the holidays. So what made you decide to, I guess, do almost like an anthropological study about the Jewish holidays in Judaism? Like what made you want to celebrate them all? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it,
0: um, you know, there are really kind of two driving forces, I would say. One was just my kind of annoyance at ignorance. You know, the idea that I would see these... Um, holidays come and go and not understand them. You know, I grew up with kind of tent poles of the top five, um, but I knew how many more there were, and it bothered me, um, I think, both as a Jew and almost as a Jewish journalist, that I didn't really understand the underpinnings um, for these holidays. I wanted to embark on them not as, as a gimmick at all, but really as a kind of as you you know, you use the word anthropological. This was you know partly historical and partly also spiritual. To really to say, kind of let's unpack um, the the origins of these holidays. You know why they were created in the first place because obviously they were created at a certain point, and why they've endured. Um, and so. Um, I was exploring it kind of journalistically in that way. But very personally, I also wanted to kind of test these holidays against today. Like, why should this matter? Why should Shemani have any re- relevance? Or, or all these six fasts that you mentioned, the six, six fasts that, that kind of pepper the year, um, uh, four out of the six of them are for uh, a temple that none of us grew up with or really, you know, uh, uh, you relate to necessarily anymore but for some reason these have endured in a very powerful you know i would say magical way. Um, and I wanted to understand that. So it, it was really taking a dive without knowing exactly where it would take me, to be very honest. And writing about it in real time meant that you had to kind of keep up researching. I, I interviewed over 60 rabbis and scholars, um, you know, kicking a deep dive into each holiday before I embarked on each one, but then trying to be in the holiday as I experienced it or chose to go observe it um, and really say, you know, what what is what is this making me think about whether in terms of who i am as a as a parent as a friend as a wife as a daughter um questions that i think are fundamental to how we live our lives
2: it's interesting um so many people dive into through to judaism through an intellectual lens and you you did that here you mentioned you you um interviewed 60 more than 60 rabbis you did untold uh, countless pages of reading, but primarily you approach this experiment from an, you know, an experiential point of view. Is that?
0: I think it's both. And I think for me, and I can only speak, you know, obviously just from, through my prism, if I don't understand it, I'm not necessarily going to feel very much. And I, I think that's true of a lot of people, although I can't speak for everyone. You know, for some, just being in a drum circle or hearing a melody is enough. Um, or sometimes it's eating, you know, your grandmother's Google. But I, I need to sort of understand um, why something is, is there and also why it's relevant today. And I find that when I ask those questions, the conversations that emerge or ensue are so challenging and frankly so um kind of pointed to to my own life that I feel and and to the lives around me that I feel like that in a sense um redounds emotionally it somehow ends up making me feel not just um more spiritual for its own sake but more connected to um the Jewish past, more connected to ancestors whom I've never known, more connected to texts, you know, pages and pages of, sort of dusty scripture that, that um, you know, and psalms and that might otherwise not be animated for me. So, in 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 a way, the learning opens up the feeling.
2: I'm curious what what surprised you the most. I mean, as a reader, I got the sense what surprised you the most is how many how many days you have to skip eating, but that that might not have been it. <laughs>
0: that's <laughs> really judgmental Brian but I'm going to just take that and let it not affect me but you're right I'm very food focused I'm somebody who does like to eat and I was kind of anxious before every fast because number one I wanted to do it you know quote unquote correctly um, and as you know some of the fasts are just you know sun up to sun down which is different than the Um Kippur and Tisha fasts which are you know the 25 hour 26 hour fast so um some rabbi is going to correct me, or maybe you guys can. It's whether it's 25 or 26. I know it's over 24 hours. But aside from wanting to get them right, I also wanted, I knew that I was going to be in a sort of a state of deprivation and discomfort that most of the people around me were not experiencing, because, you know, I move through a a world that has plenty of Jews who are not fasting, um, you know, the other five fasts of the year, and so you have to have a certain focus as to why you're doing what you're doing. If you're an Orthodox Jew, you grew up with it, you always did it, and you don't question it, and I'm sure you, you know, there isn't as, maybe there isn't as much um, kind of internal struggle, Um, but... That was true, and it goes to your question about surprise. You know, one of the surprises is how much the calendar demands of us. If we do it all And I think that Yes there's a burden In that In those demands But there's also Great power In those demands Which is that Your life isn't necessarily Just on your own terms And your own schedule um, Which is kind of You know A new idea For those of us now Who do everything on demand You know I kind of exercise When I want to Pull up a program On my computer Or do it on my own time I watch a, a TV series I can binge watch it You know If I want to In my own bedroom Or watch a movie I mean, I don't have to do very many things on someone else's schedule anymore, and this is not a calendar that lets you do that. The holidays come up when they do; they arrive fast and furious, sometimes, particularly in the fall when there's like twelve in the space of three weeks, and you know doesn't really give you a choice. And I think that not not only is it is it powerful not to have a choice in that way, but it, what it forces you to do is slow down and let go of all the stuff that you want to get done or that you think you need to get done because you have to do something that takes you kind of out of your own solipsism and your own kind of, you know, mishigas and neurosis and and focus and says, you actually have to pay attention to what this holiday is asking of you. Um, and I would argue that each holiday asks something of us um, that's actually very um that's a very strong charge. These are not passive holidays. They're often very celebratory and joyful, but they often have a challenge with them, too. Um, And so in that sense, your year changes uh, when you're paying attention and living by this Jewish clock.
1: Was there anything on this Jewish clock that you hadn't celebrated before, you hadn't done before, or had thought about it differently growing up that Surprised you and became Actually meaningful to you like was There a particular holiday that Really changed your mind About how you felt about it once you mm. Went through this process
0: Yeah I mean I would say uh, Too many to count um, and But I would say that I would just pull out two: one that I had done before and one that I had never done before um, for the first that I had was Yom Kippur, which for me has always had its meaning because it was a very, you know, I knew that it was a, a time for internal reflection and one can't help but kind of look at yourself if you're standing in synagogue for that many hours um, and reciting the al you know, uh, the, all the sins and pounding your chest. But I would say what I had never understood before I did these interviews was just how death-focused, how focused on death, on mortality, on fragility this holiday is, that it is really seizing you almost like by the throat and saying, you may not get another day. You may not get another year. You may not be here for the next Yom Kippur. So what are you going to do with your year? What are you going to do with your time? Um, How are you going to prioritize your your life, your hours, your energy? Um, And that, to me, is quite a different wake-up call for the holiday that I really hadn't heard before. In synagogue, I think, I don't want to speak for rabbis, because they choose different things to focus on, you know, in sermons and in the liturgy each year. But I do think it must be It must be a little tricky to say, I don't want to, you know, bum everyone out and talk too much about the fact that they could die. But I do think that there is something that is not morbid but galvanizing when you focus on the fact that this is a holiday that tells you not just that life is precious, but that... um, you know, the clock is ticking, and in in a sense, that that actually should free you to focus on or think about what you really want your life to be about, and whether you're living by that, by those goals. Um, so to me, that was sort of the new idea. I heard it from rabbi after rabbi, and in so much of the reading I was doing, that it's what they call a rehearsal for your death. So that was very new, and really changed the holiday for me um, in, a, in a way that I think would Permanent, um, and then in terms of the new holiday, I would say there's something about Shavuot when we, um, you know, receive the Torah at Sinai. I never celebrated that before, um, and as you know, it's it's often marked by staying up all night in study groups, or sessions, or certain kinds of learning. Um, that goes on, and I went to the JCC in Manhattan, which has this incredible teacoon of, you know, every hour there's basically 12 sessions to choose from, and it goes from 10 o'clock at night to 4 in the morning, and just walking into the JCC when I kind of felt like, what am I doing? And It was Memorial Day. It was a Saturday night. I was like, who's going to be there? And there were 4,000 people there, you know, and watching that all of us cared enough, and not that we should pat ourselves on the back for giving a Saturday night to this, but this was not something anyone was making us do, and there was just an energy and a solidarity around joining together and thinking about what it means to stand at Sinai today. What it, you know, the rabbis tell us we all stood at Sinai. Well, what, how is that real for us today? And what does it mean to kind of make that contract, um, with Judaism year after year and, and decide to, you know, that, what I know about Torah isn't enough. What I know about uh, liturgy isn't enough. I'm I'm going kind of back to the well to understand more and to do it side by side with other Jews. So that's, that's been very powerful. Plus, you you eat cheesecake on Shavuot. I didn't know I that was a, a tradition.
1: Oh, I was actually I about it. to say that was when you were talking about your descriptions of Shavuot about staying up all night reading Torah. My first thought was, oh yeah, that's the holiday where you get a lot of cheesecake. Yeah. So, you're if, not the only one that Zabar's, thinks that food. Yeah,
0: no, it's... <laughs> definitely good. The cheesecake is
1: geek. One of the things that I think that was kind of interesting that you had brought up is like this loss of control that, and you like, you know, knowing your background, you are just, and, and, you know, your family, you seem to be uh, somebody who's kind of like the master of your own destiny and then having to give up control. Was that something that you were easily able to do in the beginning? Did you get a groove towards the end of the year? How were you able to give up that control in order to get some sort of relief rather than the stress of it
0: that's a great question i think you're asking it very politely i don't i don't think i'm a master of my own destiny i think i'm a control freak (laughs) and that and 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 that's so you're absolutely (laughs) right about that and a control freak in the sense that i sort of i'm somebody who's kind of rushes through my life who has a to-do list in my head who sometimes has you know trouble falling asleep because of all the things i realize i haven't remembered to do calls I forgot to return or emails I didn't answer. And and so there was some great um almost like welcome respite deliverance from that treadmill with these with this with this holiday expedition because it kind of has no patience for my for my lifestyle. It's kind of like whatever you want to do Abby it's really not up to you, and it, there. And it's not just about what you can't do; it's about what you're doing instead, which is, in, in you know, sort of forcibly slowing down and looking at things and asking yourself questions that you don't necessarily give yourself the time to ask. And you know, I would say, you know, and to Brian's question of what surprised me, almost to a holiday. This was a calendar. These are holidays that that demand that you look at what you're doing for someone else and not just what you are experiencing or how happy or content or successful you are. It's, it's who is suffering around you or either, you know, within your four walls or across the ocean. And that, you know, again can make you kind of beat yourself up or you can say, um, how can I actually be better tomorrow or today? And, and what is my tradition reminding me to ask myself about my behavior in the world um, in small and large ways. So in all of that, I I like to think that I was a good person before the holidays, and I tried to be a good person before this holiday, um, um, you know, deep dive. But I do think that there is something about this calendar and the frequency of these holidays that almost, you know, doesn't, doesn't leave you alone very long if that makes sense, and that for me and my personality was something I did give myself over to.
2: We just uh, had a guest on the program who made a very interesting comment. I wasn't sure what to make of it. He said that people claim Judaism doesn't have a dogma, but Judaism does have a dogma. It's called the calendar. It's called Jewish time. I'm mm-hmm. um, wondering, I mean, is he is he right? Can we Can we actually, you know, Extrapolate a philosophy from our from our calendar.
0: That's such a great question. I, I, first of all, I do agree that the dogma employs Jewish time, and first of all, it is dogmatic if one does it to the letter. Because I mean dogmatic in the sense of demanding and strict. And you know, I have to be very honest. I I am not an observant Jew now, and it's not that I'm going to do all eighteen holidays every year. But what I do think. Um, the dogma ends up being, or maybe that's, you know, a judgmental word. There's some kind of judgment inherent in that word. What I do think that um, our tradition returns to again and again is that idea of um, we were strangers and therefore we need to be compassionate to and helping other strangers that we have had the experience of, of being in, in Mitzrayim, in these narrow places, in, you know, in bondage, and whether that's, you know, on a macro level or um, in a, you know, in, a, in smaller private ways in our own lives. And having that experience actually, you know, is a charge. It demands something of us you know, in terms of uh, looking at who else might be in that place right now. And I don't mean that in, you know, in a kumbaya kind of way. I mean that in a, like, there is something active that is asked of us by this calendar. Um, and then there's also the togetherness of the calendar, which I think is, a, you know, I don't know if it's a dogma, but it's certainly a fab- the fabric of Judaism, which is that we are thrown together, um, you know, throughout the year in ways, I mean, you just don't, you don't mark these holidays alone very often. I mean, um, the fasts, a little bit, you do, they're a little more uh, private and internal, but for most for most of these holidays you are thrown together with your family or with others in, in synagogue, it's, they're communal. And I think there's tremendous, um, power and connectivity and kind of, um, it's, it's the antithesis of the texts and the, you know, and the tinders and the swiping, you, you have to be in the same room with other people. Um, that, that, that kind of, to me is, you know, that is galvanizing in a way, or it's certainly, um, it certainly makes you feel differently about the time you sh- you have to you have to show up.
1: It you had said earlier about how you were going through, especially the fast days, where you were like the rest of the world was kind of going about their own business, and here you were, um, for example, fasting, and nobody else around you was doing it. Um, how did you find? And you're talking about this togetherness now. Um, where did you rely on the togetherness? throughout your journey? I mean, were your family members willing participants in this? Was it really leaning on the Jewish communities around you? How did you find that? Yeah, I mean,
0: I think I I definitely set out without relying on my family because I didn't think it was fair to sort of expect or demand that they do everything with me. But that said, I have a very supportive family. Uh, You know, two kids who were teenagers at the time and my husband and they were cheerleaders in the sense that they knew this mattered to me and they wanted to uh, support it every step of the way, which they did. Um, And I was bringing a lot home. I mean, you know, many of these holidays are home-based rituals and So I would often want in some way to kind of animate whatever the the themes or ideas were um, that I was learning at our table or ritual, whether it was, you know, lighting Hanukkah candles or um, the Seder. So I was definitely taking what I was learning and kind of trying bringing it home, but trying to do it without sort of the ruler of the head. And making it a, a boring slog, but making it as interesting, frankly, as I was finding it as I learned about it. If that makes sense, I wanted to transfer the excitement um, that I was experiencing somehow to my kids. Um, uh, that, but that said, you know, most of it I was doing on my own and kind of like a wandering Jew, traveling uh, to uh, to different spiritual communities, synagogues, um, and and trying to get a taste of how people do things. Because, obviously, you could go um, and have a Tu Bishvat Seder, you know, 50 million different ways if you travel the country celebrating Tu mm-hmm. So, it's not that anything was going to be definitive, but I certainly wanted to be the explorer that was open um, to kind of, you know, investigate, but also just experience how... Uh, a community approaches a holiday and just to try to be in it with my with whoever was going to be there because they that's where they go for that holiday so i guess i'm not being as as articulate as i'd like to be just saying i would show up and i knew others were going to be there whom i was going to be kind of in in community with even if they weren't if they weren't my friends already, and I also returned to Central Synagogue, which is my synagogue, um, for you know a few of these holidays, because it always felt important to kind of come home um, during this journey as well.
2: I mean, I actually neglected to say one of your one of your big jobs is synagogue president. You're you're the president of Central Synagogue in Manhattan, uh, a Reform synagogue known as one of the more vibrant and innovative in in the country. And I guess I'm just wondering, based on, on your conversations there and, 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 and what you observed, do you, do you, do you have any sense what's, 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 what's on the horizon for the broad stroke of liberal American Jewry or, or, or have, a, have a real sense of what what Jews are, are, are looking for in, in terms of seeking meaning in, in their lives? I know it's a big
0: question, but... Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, it's it's what everyone struggles with is kind of like what's the next chapter, and you know, I I think if we were going to really try to be broad stroke about it, it the answer is meaning. Um, you use that word, and it's the right word, and it's very that word means different things to different people. You know, I, and I have seen just in my role as president here. Uh, at Central Synagogue, you know, it's a very diverse community, of 2,500 families. It's, you know, six thousand sixty-five hundred people. Mm-hmm. There's no way that I can say everyone's looking for the same thing. And some people are, com- you know, incredibly moved by the music that we have on Friday nights. Some um, really feel connection when they go to a Torah class. And some really have felt their, their deepest connection on a trip, either to Israel or some place in Eastern Europe, you know, when they go with rabbis. And I see, and I think I've learned, that it isn't one-size-fits-all, and it's partly why the the kind of institutional Jewish community struggles a bit. Um, You know, to their credit, they're always kind of trying to unlock places where people can connect, but it's not always clear what someone's bringing to the table in terms of what they need. You know, I mean, some people want to be very private in their prayer. Um, some people want a much more connective, let's let's all hold hands and sway kind of prayer. And, you know, knowing what is going to make someone feel like they want more Judaism or that they feel comfortable in their Judaism is, I think, really, you know, that's where the alchemy or the you know the sweet spot comes and it's very hard to find to know where it is for each person i mean i know i can only speak what in terms of what happened to me and the fact that i came to this obviously relatively late in my life and and i see that and I really believe this that the Jewish community um, welcomes you whenever you kind of get on a train, and, and it, you know it's 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 always circling, and it doesn't necessarily need us. Um, but once we're we say I I want to put some skin in the game, it gives you know a heck of a lot back, and I think that there's you know. For me, that's one of the most important things for the future is just knowing that someone who says, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, this doesn't speak to me, this doesn't really do it for me, uh, they're not necessarily finished. It may not be the moment right now, but something could happen in their lives, whether it's a loss or a joy or, you know, a child or uh, a marriage or whatever it is that suddenly makes them want to take another look at this part of themselves.
1: Out of curiosity, thinking about also, um, where you're thinking about the future of the Jewish community and then us working at um, part of the work that we do is working in a rabbinical school. And you utilized quite a few rabbis, you know, just just a couple, only 60, um, in the process of this book um, alone. And did your idea of a rabbi in the Jewish community change through this process? Or what do you think the role of a rabbi is for the Jews today? Hmm.
0: Great question. I mean, I think, honestly, uh, if I came away with anything, I already had great admiration in a real way, and now I have just awe. And part of the awe is just, it's not just the discipline, but it's the depth of um, mining for meaning that that rabbis seem to be able to do almost like on, on one foot. And I know it's because of what you know, the the training is and the um, and the uh, the day-to-day kind of life and task of a rabbi, whether one has a congregation or one is a teacher or one is in, you know, leading uh, an organization of whatever, of one kind, or, or if you're a rabbi who's a writer um, or who has a podcast, there is this kind of orientation to asking the questions that most of us don't, don't really get to or know how to, which is, how do I make something ancient, um, urgent for this moment? And I, you know, I think that I I didn't get to all the rabbis I wanted to by a mile. You know, I just, that was the joy of this, was just being able to be like a kid in the candy store and kind of call any rabbi and say, you know, let's talk about Schmini at because it's one of the hardest holidays to kind of understand and tell me why, why there's, you know, some some resonance in it from, from my life or any of our lives right now and they could do it. And that's just, you know, and they could do it not as a test again, or, you know, as a, as some kind of like fake, um, you know, dance. It, it was, you know, they could pick things out, um, that are, I think incredibly, um, you know, specific and important for our lives right now. So I, I would say my, just my, um, my estimation of just the the rabbinic kind of uh, not just the work, but the the the, year, the annual um, kind of uh, energy of what it is to find meaning in things that you are revisiting year after year, because that's part of what the barrier is for so many Jews. It's just the redundancy. I mean, they say like we just. I mean, look at Passover. We, you know, I grew up doing the the, Haggadah, the Haggadah twice, you know, back to back, and no one really ever explained why i mean other than the the the, fa- the the calendar and the new moon and all of that the ancient reason for why that you have Satyrs. but we should also be able to say how the haggadah changes from one night to the next or how it can change from one night to the next or how you can find a different meaning from thursday to friday night or wednesday to thursday or whatever it is and you know rabbis can do that and they and they do it in a way that i think it's like having you know the, the greatest uh, teacher the greatest professor the greatest therapist um, right there with you. And I do think it's hard, by the way, to do this alone. I think it's hard to do it without rabbis. I don't think it's impossible, um, but I think rabbis are often the ones who, who can open the doors that we need.
2: Well, thank you so much, Abigail. It's been such a pleasure having you. We, we, we loved your book. Uh, listeners should check it out, My, my Jewish Year. Um, thank you for sharing some of your journey
1: Thank you. thank you for basically putting yourself through this year-long experience that we've we, many of us Jews have been wondering about, and yet you have really dared to experience.
2: You can get it vicariously—a well, whole Jewish you. year.
0: <laughs> well, it really means a lot that you all really—not just. Um, kind of honored me by taking it seriously, but gave me this time. um, And I'm just a huge admirer of, of, you know, the worlds that you move in and what you all do. So thank you, Rachel and Brian.
2: Thank you.
1: And you can, so make sure you definitely check out My Jewish Year by Abigail Progribin. And you can check out, we also have an interview brian actually interviewed her and you can check that out on our website jewishrecon.org you can check out this episode and all of our other episodes of trending jewish at trending fm. so the, you've been listening to trending jewish and this is rachel burgess
2: brian Schwartzman,
1: and we will catch you next week